Okay, yesterday we learned that the incomplete tzaddik, the incomplete righteous person, has a tremendous amount of variation in terms of the quantity and quality of the subjugation of the negative qualities of the animal soul. And that this actually, there are many, many such people, right? As the Gemara says, there are 18,000 righteous people before Hashem. So even if you spread that over all the generations, it's still quite a bit, right? Now what we're going to do is we're going to now, the rest of the chapter is going to put our focus on the perfectly righteous, the Tzadik Gomor, whose love for Hashem is complete, their hatred for Eklipa is absolute, and their animal soul no longer delights in any ungodly thing and is thus transformed to delighting only in God. And we're going, the rest of the chapter will be devoted to an analysis of the complete tzaddik. Okay? All right. However, it is with regard to the superior quality of the completely righteous that Rabbi Shimon Ba'in Yochai said, I have seen superior men, B'nai Aliyah, and their numbers are few. Okay. Well. So, how many complete tzaddikim are there? 18,000. Complete. Oh, a few. A few. Very, very few. Okay. So, now, he uses this term, b'nai aliyah. You even notice our translator felt that it was important to put the um, Hebrew in there, in transliteration, the parentheses, which is translated as superior men. Okay. Um... So let's just have a quick Hebrew lesson. What does the word aliyah mean? Going up, ascending, right? So it can be used in many contexts. For instance, when a man is called to the Torah, we call it a aliyah because he's going up to the Torah reading. Right? Some communities even actually put the platform where you read the Torah as elevated, right? So you literally go up. Okay. Um, we talk about moving to the land of Israel, to the Holy Land, as aliyah. Why? Of the That's right. The Holy Land is the highest place. Okay. Um, so, now we have this term in front, which is B'nai. B'nai means the sons of. Okay, so it would be the plural of saying Ben. Okay, so let's, let's you talk about the following term. Have you ever heard of the term Bar Mitzvah or Bas Mitzvah? Bar is just the Aramaic for Ben, which means son. So Ben Mitzvah or Bar Mitzvah would mean son of Mitzvah, Bas Mitzvah would mean Daughter. Daughter of mitzvah. What does that mean? You hit 12 and all of a sudden your parents' name changes to mitzvah? Yeah. Bas mitzvah, daughter of mitzvah, right? Oh. No. Okay. What, is it, what, what, what does bar or bas mitzvah mean? Bar is son of mitzvah. No one knows what son of mitzvah means. It's an undertaking, so maybe this is Yourself too. Close, close, close. You're, you're, you're making it a matter of choice, but you have the idea right. That the Hebrew term ben, or the Aramaic term bar, son, or for the female bas, daughter, means that you're subject to a category. So, by the way, being bas mitzvah does not mean you take upon yourself mitzvahs. It means God has now said, you're obligated to do mitzvahs whether you like it or not. You are subject to the mitzvahs. Okay? Bar mitzvah would mean that a man is subject to the mitzvahs, okay? What would, there's a term bar inshin, which means son of punishment. What would that mean? He's liable for punishment. Yeah, he's liable for subject to punishment. You get how this works? So you want to say someone is in a certain category, we, we use this term ben or bas, depending, son or daughter of the category, okay? So it's used in a more metaphoric sense. Make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. So then what would b'nai aliyah mean? It's plural. Sons of... Vasent, right? Meaning, what do these people have as a characteristic that defines them as a class, as a group? Some notion of ascent, right? Some notion of going up, right? And what we now see is that that, that, that term, the Altar was saying, is not referring to a tzaddik in general, but a specific class of tzaddik, the complete tzaddik. So the complete tzaddik is understood as aliyah, as someone who is engaged in an ascent, in a going up, in a way that the incomplete tzaddik is not. And Rabbi Shimba Chai says, of these complete tzaddikim, of these b'nai aliyah, these people who, are the, who can be categorized as ascending in some way, there are very, very few of them. Okay? In fact, Rabbi Shimba Chai was known to say that if you were to be really, really narrow in your really careful about how you analyze this. There's actually only, when he was alive, there were only two. 
him and his son. And if you were to be really precise about it, you know, just him. So there you go for humility, right? <laughs> He's hiding his... Okay. okay. No, that was not hiding. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, you ever heard of Moshe? You ever heard of some stuff Moshe says? She doesn't come up. I mean, it's funny because at the end of the Torah it says Moshe was the most humble of all people, right? Mm-hmm. Have you actually read what Moshe says? Well, the beginning is more humble. And he's like, no, no, not me. Like, not me. Right, at the end of the 40 years, he stands in front of you and says, I stood between you and God. It's like, you know, it's pretty humble, right? That was very good. Very good. Okay. It, he, he could have said it in a more... I don't think that's a haughty thing to say. Very good. It's a fact Very good. So let's go back now to Rabbi Shem Baruchai. What Rabbi Shem Baruchai says that there are very few of these B'nai Aliyah, of these people of ascent. Right? And if you're going to be really precise, there's really only currently two. But if you want to be extra precise about it, there's really, in fact, just one, and it's me. Was he being arrogant? No, he was just kind of stating a fact. He was stating a fact. <laughs> right? Right. In other words, being unaware of reality is not the same thing as humility. A person who is by far stronger or smarter or better looking than another person, right, and they pretend that that's not true is not a sign of humility. It's a sign of discomfort with whatever makes us real. It's actually a great video. Someone comes to the Rebbe and um, they've been last time by the Rebbe, like, I don't know, 17 years ago or something like that. Some, Some amount of time like that. And they, they come to the Rebbe, um, I think it was by dollars or something, and the, the Rebbe kind of picks up the conversation. Last time we spoke about this, what's going on with this, whatever it was. I think it was something to do with, with, um, with for advancing Jewish education. I don't remember these specifics. And the person is very blown away because he hasn't seen the Rebbe in 17 years. And the Rebbe remembers exactly where they left off their conversations. The Rebbe, you're amazing! And um, the Rebbe has a very interesting response. The Rebbe does not say, no, I'm not. Mm. The Rebbe doesn't say, yes, I am. You know what the Rebbe's response is? Mm-hmm. He says, so maybe together we can, you know, do something with that. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't remember the exact wording, but the Rebbe doesn't deny that he's amazing. He's like, okay, but like, so what? Like, like, if we, together, maybe we can utilize that into like actually achieving something productive, right? You know, there's, in other words, denying that you are talented or gifted or exceptional is not a sign of humility. Right? What is a sign? What's a sign of humility? Is you're just not impressed by yourself. The person who walks around feeling really impressed because they're smart, or talented, or gifted, or accomplished, or have amazing memory, is not humble. Right? To, to, to quote Rabbi Yochanan Zakkai, the famous sage, he said, "If you've studied a tremendous amount of Torah, you shouldn't feel pride because that's what you're created for." And if you think about it like this, are you aware that you can walk? Mm-hmm. Do you feel very special that you can walk? Like, I'm so special. No, it's just like, you can walk. Like, okay, fine. Like, you know, if it's useful, you'll do it. If it's not, you won't, right? So to be humble is to see that in yourself in every aspect. Even the parts of you that make yourself exceptional. Does that make sense? Okay. So that's exactly why I brought this up. Is that, yes, Rabbi Shimba Yochai does say that he is the most righteous of all the people alive in his generation. And also, he doesn't find himself that impressive. He doesn't think that, that somehow he's more interesting of a person and more attention should be paid to him per se simply because of that. Right. That makes sense? Yes. Okay, good. Now, let's get back to this idea. So, the rest of the, the, rest of the chapter is going to talk about this new term called B'nai people who are under this category of ascent. Why is the complete tzaddik called someone who has a connection with this idea of ascent, of ascending, of going up? So just to quickly review, we already have two terms for the complete tzaddik. One complete tzaddik, and that's talking about the love of the godly soul. That the love of the godly soul is tzaddik, it's righteous, meaning it's proper. It's a love for Hashem, not a love just to be connected to Hashem, right? I love God, not my relationship with God. Number two, it's complete, it's absolute, right? It's not constrained or limited by anything. We also have the term tzaddik, who has good, because the animal soul has been transformed into good. Now we have a third term, 
B'nai Aliyah, someone who is under the category of ascent, someone who's about going upwards. And we want to understand why is specifically the complete tzaddik have this other description, this description of Aliyah, of ascent. And we're going to have, in the rest of the chapter, two explanations. And then we're going to tie those two explanations together. So how many reasons are we going to say that this person, the complete tzaddik, is, a, is an ascending person? How many explanations are there going to be? Two. Two. But those two explanations are really going to be? One. One. Right? If you go deeper into them, you'll see that they're interrelated. Okay. The reason for their title of B'nai is that they convert evil and make it ascend to holiness. As is written in the Zohar in the introduction, that Rabbi Chia, wished to ascend to the heavenly shrine of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, he heard a voice come out and say, which of you before coming here has converted darkness into light and bitter taste into sweetness? Otherwise, do not approach here and so forth. So this idea of transforming darkness into light, bitterness into sweetness, and this is the idea of ascent, is that you take something which is ungodly and you have elevated. What does it mean to elevate it? To turn it into something godly. I would like to, I'm not really thrilled with this translation, I'm going to do it anyway. Because sometimes if you know the context, it's just nicer. So. Should have closed the book. You know that thing when you find something? You remember where it is, and then you forget where it is. Yeah, all the time. <laughs> all the time? That's going to be frustrating. Yeah, it's okay. Okay, all right. So, here's the story. Okay. So now, what does it say in the text? It says, Rabbi Chi wanted to enter the sh- heavenly shrine of Rabbi Shem Bechai, and you heard a voice, whoever has converted darkness into light and bitter taste into sweetness should come forth, otherwise don't come at all. You think, okay, I don't know what that means, but it's actually quite an interesting story. So the story goes like this. Rabbi Chia, who was one of the students um, of Rabbi Shimon, he fasted for 40 days in order that he should merit to see the soul of the departed Rabbi Shimon. And he receives a divine answer that he doesn't merit to see. So that's right, let's just stop there. What kind of person was Rabbi Chia? Kind of 
days to see the soul. soul of his departed teacher, right? Okay, that's already going put you in like a certain kind of headspace, okay? Then he gets a message that he's, no, you don't, they're not going to happen. So what does he do? He fasts another 40 days. And then he merits to see Rabbi Shimon and his son, the son of Rabbi Shimon, Rabbi Lazar. And they're discussing the very same passage that Rabbi Chi had been teaching. Yeah, that's it. Okay. Meanwhile, there appeared a host of huge winged celestial beings upon whom Rabbi Shimon Rabbi Lazar, his son, sat, being born aloft into the heavenly academy. This is what Rabbi Chi is seeing, right? So we're talking about a person who's having prophetic visions, okay? And, there, and then it goes on. Rabbi Shimon says, Let Rabbi Chia enter, behold, the Holy One, blessed be He. And then it goes on to how Rabbi Shimon wants to invite him for a long time. And as Rabbi Chia gets closer to the heavenly realm, he starts to feel embarrassed that he doesn't deserve to get in. And all of a sudden, then a voice comes and says, Lower your eyes, don't look at the light. And says, all of you beings, who of you has turned darkness into light, bitter into sweet? Who has waited for the day of the light to break forth and the time that the king shall visit his beloved? Who has glorified the kings of kings in the world? He who did not do all of this is not able to enter. So that's an interesting kind of a story, right? What's happening? Maybe he is what kind of person? A person who can fast and have prophetic visions. And at the end of the day, Still not good enough. Somehow that doesn't count as transforming and elevating the darkness and flight. And then the story goes on and on. Rabbi Shimon tries to get him in. It's a whole back and forth. So you have to be thinking now. I know we use this phrase a lot, right? You're elevating something. You're taking something unholy and making it holy, right? But if Rabbi Chia was initially denied entrance because he wasn't of this special class of people who elevate the darkness into light, then you have to ask yourself, well, what does that really mean to elevate darkness into light? Like what... It's not such a common thing, it's not such an obvious thing. So what is that? Okay. So let's think about this for a second. Does it make sense to turn darkness into light? Let's think about that for a second. Just as an analogy. You could remove darkness and replace it with light. You can remove darkness and replace it with light? Like, you know, I could leave and some other teacher will sit here and teach you, like that. Like you turn on a light. Well, what is darkness? The absence, the absence of light. So, let me ask you like a slightly more philosophical question. Is it correct to say that the way to remove the darkness is to introduce light? Is that, no. is that actually conceptually accurate? No, it's still there. It's just concealed, no? You have darkness, you want to remove the darkness, you do so by introducing the light. When you introduce light, have you removed the darkness? Temporarily. What is darkness? What is darkness? The absence of light. So if you have light, that's just another way of saying there's no darkness, right? Saying, in other words, saying there's no light is the same as saying it's dark. Saying it's light is the same as saying it's not dark. There's not like two different things here. There isn't a thing called light and a thing called darkness that interact with each other, is there? Like, it makes sense to say, like, the fire heated the water, right? The fire has an effect on the water, right? Light doesn't have an effect on darkness. Why not? What is darkness? It's the default. What is it? Think about it. It's nothing. There is no such thing as darkness. It's just an absence of light. There's no such thing as darkness. Can you transform darkness into light then? No. No, it doesn't make any sense. Well, literally. Okay, so now explain to me. So, now let's contrast the other analogy. Something could taste bitter. Could you take something that's bitter and make it sweet? Yes. Mm. No. Sure you can. Yeah, you have, um, you add sugar. No, that's not making it sweet. Pour sugar on it. That's not making it sweet. That's covering up the bitterness. I want to add. you let it, let's say, ripen more. Right, so certain fruits, right, if you, they ripen more, okay, or certain things if you cook them, the heat, oh, okay. right, yeah, that's interesting. right, 
In other words, because bitterness has to do with the chemical composition of the thing, right? And sweetness has to do with chemical composition. So if you manipulate how it's comprised with its chemicals, you could take something that was originally bitter and make it sweet. Can you change darkness into light? What? Apparently. So I'm going to ask you again, what does it mean to elevate darkness and make it into light? Then you're not elevating the dark. But that, is that, then you're not, that, that's not, then you're, that's not converting, right? It says converting. In fact, the Hebrew is quite specific. Mahapech, to transform. How do you convert darkness to light? You shouldn't be able to do so. Okay, so what must we conclude is that when it's talking about darkness, is it talking about a darkness is just the absence of light? No. no. So it has to be a different kind of darkness. Okay. So I'll start this by illustrating the story. The story. The third Chabad Rebbe that Tzemach Tzedek was one time saying a Hasidic discourse. And one of the great Hasidim, Isaac Humler, was standing... And at the middle of the discourse, he realized that he was casting a shadow onto the desk that the Rebbe was in front of. It was blocking the light. And so he thought to move, because that's you know, disrespectful. And then he had a second thought, and he said, well, on the contrary, I should let the shadow stay there, and the Rebbe will elevate the darkness. And the idea is to elevate the darkness, so I'll leave the shadow and let him elevate the darkness. And as he thought that in the middle of the discourse that Tzimach Sadiq said, with no connection to what was before or after, is that darkness is not something that's real, so it can't be elevated. And then he went back on to saying what he was talking about. Nothing to do with the actual discourse. Who's that one confused? Why? That happens in discourses. Like, discourses are like quasi-prophecy. They're in the middle of... Sometimes the Rebbe's say something without intending to. There was, a, there's a, there was a story once where the previous Rebbe in the middle of a discourse said something, and afterwards he was trying to figure out like, what, the, what the divine message was in that, because he, he didn't intend to say it. And it was only months later he realized what it had to do with anything. So It's a different state of mind. To put it mildly. Anyway. So the Tzemach Sadiq said darkness isn't a real thing, so it can't be elevated. It's not a metzias, it's not a reality to it. Which I mean makes sense, right? Like, how do you get rid of a shadow? By putting light on. Yeah, you just, not, the shadow isn't a thing, right? Okay. So, the problem is that Chassidus speaks about elevating darkness. So, later on, um, after the story, the, if I remember correctly, the Tzemach Tzedek himself explained that there's actually two kinds of darkness. There's a darkness which can be transformed and a darkness which cannot be transformed. And as a way of illustration, let's take the notion of sadness. Okay, so to be clear, just to know what sadness is, sadness is the feeling where a person has a sense of giving, of giving up, of disillusionment, of emptiness, no motivation. Like that's what we mean by sadness. In Hebrew, this is called atzvos. Atzvos or atzvut. Yeah, but I'm, I'm Ashkenazi. I say everything with a nice at the end. Atzvos. Doesn't that be hard work, though? No. We just learned that atzvos means like... Etzev. The root, the root can also... Right. The root, the root also can mean toil. Yes. Like many ancient Hebrew words, the root has multiple meanings. Okay. So, if a person is feeling that kind of cold disillusionment and emptiness... It's not saying this. Yeah. How do you utilize that for a positive end? Nothing to do with religion, for a second, just like in life. Like, can that be utilized towards a positive end? Yes. How? I'm talking about the feeling itself. I want the feeling itself. Your person feels that way. How is that helpful? How is that beneficial? What? No. Tishabav is not supposed to feel like that at all. Because. Crying actually can be for different reasons. In other words, there, there's a, 
there's a, a different idea, which is where a person feels negatively towards something, and that bothers them, right? And the idea of Tisha is that the lack of basically should really bother us, and we should feel like a strong desire to fix that, and it should kind of eat away at us. It's a very different kind of a feeling. But that's not what I'm describing. I'm describing a very different kind of the kind of feeling where a person feels a sense of 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 despair and emptiness and pessimism and that whole kind of thing. Well, the reason why I'm avoiding the word depression is because we, we tend in English to use the word depression also for mental illness. And this is a kind of thing that healthy people also experience. Um, yeah, sadness is like more general. Right. So but the, 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 the thing is like when you learn chassidus, teach chassidus, when you learn chassidus, you're going to encounter the word atzvus. And the word atzvus means a generic sadness. Now, generic sadness is it, and it's differentiated with another kind of feeling we learn later on in Tanya, which is called meriros, which is usually translated as like bitterness, or um, it actually comes with the word to mean bitter, but it feeling, so for instance, the, the, the sense of, of dissatisfaction with something, and that it really bothers you, right? That's a very different kind of a thing. Um, the, the kind of key difference between the two is, is that when a person feels what Chassid describes as atzvos, there is a sense of withdrawal from life. Um, whereas, right, so, so a, a person, a person can feels kind of coldness and a kind of emptiness and that kind of a thing. That feeling of that is, from a psychological point of view, not that I'm a therapist or an expert, is not an abnormal or unhealthy thing for a person to know. It is not the sign there's something wrong with you if you feel that way. It's quite, it depends on context. For example, God forbid somebody loses somebody very close to them in a short period of time afterwards. Right? It would, not, it would be quite expected to feel that way, right? God forbid a person gets fired before they've processed that, right? They, they could feel this kind of thing, right? Um, now, if you have that kind of feeling, you know, ongoing, sustainably not contextualized, and it's really inhibiting your ability to function, right? That's just a different kind of an issue. So, yeah. And the reason why, again, I'm bringing this up is later on you'll hopefully learn more Tanya, and Alterba discusses ways of dealing with atzvos. He has no ways of dealing with depression, like as a clinical mental health issue. You know what the Alterba solution for clinical depression is? There's does he a, talk about it? No. Okay, so. There you go. It's important to realize that, but he does spend a lot of chapters talking about this feeling called atzvus, but he's talking about it when it's kind of in a proper context, such as a person has undergone a serious loss or something has happened to them and they feel this way, right? Now, is that kind of a feeling, just the feeling itself, does that, does that feeling itself a constructive thing? Can you then use that feeling no, why? Because if you kind of think about it, what you're feeling, what you're experiencing is kind of an absence of feelings. Then there's a kind of a, 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 a like I used it before, like a coldness and an, an emptiness. It's, it's, not, it's not even so much a negative emotion as so much an emptiness of emotion, a sense of a void, right? Kind of like physical darkness, just an absence of light. Okay. Now, on the other hand, what if you feel deep resentment or anger? Could that be channeled towards something positive? Yeah. Yes. Why? Because as negative as it feels, right, there's something, there's something real about it. There's, a, there's, a, there's an emotional energy to it, right? There's an engagement present. So if a person is really passionate about something wrong, well, at least they're passionate. They can be turned over to being passionate about something. But if the person is just apathetic and disinterested, that leads to nothing. So now... And it, it, so that psychological thing, there's, a, there's, there's something also true about the klipa, about the forces of evil. The forces of evil are considered to be darkness. Why? Because godliness is considered to be light. Right? So it's opposite, lightness, dark, right? But there are actually two elements. There's one thing, which is where, where, the, where the forces of unholiness, where things that are unholy, the light isn't present. In other words, just like if you have a room and there's no windows, the sunlight doesn't reach the inside of the room. The inside of the room is dark. In that sense, the darkness is just an absence of light, right? So when there's klipa, when there's these negative forces, 
they create a space in the world which is devoid of godly light. Okay? If I remove those, I'm not transforming the darkness into light. I'm just introducing light to where there had previously been no light, right? But now you think about, going back to the analogy of the, of the room. If the room has no windows, well, what's the room made of? I mean, the room has to be made of something. There's something walls. blocking the light, right? Walls. Okay, what are the walls made of? Brick. Let's not use brick. Wood. Good, let's use wood. So, I have another way of making the room quite bright. Setting the wood on fire. That's right. Because <laughs> if I set the wood on fire, now the wood has, the wood, which is previously preventing there from being any light, has now actually become the source of the light itself. <laughs> yes, it is problematic in other ways. But I would like to use that analogy for a reason, because what does that do to the wood? Right, the wood has been radically <laughs> changed so that it's not recognizable at all. Right? So what does it mean to turn darkness into light? Take the thing that's causing darkness and using it against itself. That's right. So you're taking the thing which is itself obscures godliness and that itself not doesn't just just not just allowing godliness godly light to to enter it but you're actually turning that into a beacon of light itself do you mean burning the walls to get rid of them so the light from outside will go into the room or no i mean that if the walls are on fire the inside of the room will be quite bright i mean i wouldn't want to be there because there's smoke issues and other stuff but right so how would you turn dark? So during, what would be an example of turning something dark into light? Would be burning something. Because what are you doing when you're burning something? You're taking something which prevents light from being there, and now it's becoming a source of light, right? Well, our godly soul, sorry, our animal soul, what is our animal soul? Is our animal soul from the perspective of godly soul? Is it a source of light or a source of darkness? Don't get an either. Source of darkness. Because it obscures the truth of Hashem. So what, is the, what has the complete tzaddik done that the incomplete tzaddik didn't do? That's right. And in burning it, they transform the animal drive into something which is actually a source of godly light. Now, the idea here of elevating something is quite radical, and I, I would like to emphasize the radicalness of it, because later in Hasidus, this idea gets kind of toned down the idea, to the thing that some of us are more familiar with, the idea of like, you, you did an object, and you did it with a mitzvah, like, well, that's very nice. But I think if you first understand the, the kind of the pure notion of the idea, to transform darkness into light means to take something which obscures the light, blocks the light, acts against the light, right, in a substantive way, and change it so radically that now it's doing the opposite. So in a certain sense, which is one sense, in a certain sense, transforming darkness into light is a destructive act. How do we know if someone is a complete solid then? I don't know. I didn't know if someone was a complete solid. Like but you want like you a said litmus there are test. A few well, the so like text says in the loop. Yeah. So so the question so the, the, the question is like this. There it depends how you're asking the question. If you're asking the question like, if I take a person kind of in isolation, is there a test that I can run to see if they're a complete tzaddik? Like, 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 you know, you can like, I can test to see some, whether or not somebody is, um, um, knows how to do calculus. I can calculus problems, see if they do that. So the answer to that is not really. There isn't, because we're talking about something so deep and so internal, it's not necessarily the case that you could be able to run a test to tell. So then the question becomes, um, and, and let's use it. Let's use let, let's use it in anything. Can you test whether someone's a prophet? Can you? No. Which is problematic, right? Right. Okay. But then there are things where you can't test the thing itself, but you could have criteria. So, for instance, in, in halacha, in Jewish law, we have a mitzvah to obey a prophet, which means I have to know who's a prophet. So Hashem sets down criteria for us to evaluate a prophet. Now. Is it theoretically possible someone who's not a prophet passes the criteria? Sure, it's theoretically possible, but the Torah says we don't, we don't care about that, right? We have standards of evidence in many things in life, and, right? And so you take the example, like, 
Um, oh, I mean, and you use this, I think it illustrates it very nicely, right? What is, the t what is a foolproof test to figure out whether a woman is pregnant? That's right. If she gives birth, she was clearly pregnant, right? That's, that's an easy test, right? However, right, <laughs> in the early stages of pregnancy, that we don't have a foolproof test, right? Now, there are pregnancy tests, right? But those pregnancy tests are basically that you have some kind of a substance which generally reacts to a certain kind of chemical, which generally comes in a woman's body because she's pregnant, right? And so is it statistically possible that a woman could test positive and a pregnancy test not be pregnant or vice versa? Sure, there's these error rates. And, you know, once they reach a certain threshold, we say we'll assume they're not an error until proven otherwise, right? And so you would have the same thing with, say, a prophet, is that if a person meets certain criteria, we're required to assume, we're, assume that they are a prophet until proven otherwise, okay? In that sense, right, you could ask the question is, um, are there things that we could say, even though there's no halacha that you need to know who is a complete tzaddik, not a complete tzaddik, but are there things that we could say make the claim to being a complete tzaddik a reasonable claim to assume that they are a complete tzaddik or unreasonable and that we should assume likewise? And that I think you could answer. Like what? So first off, um, they would have to have, um, it would have to be that, that you, this person, as we'll, we'll get into later, this person would have to be in any kind of way by anybody who's encountered them or knows them, um, come across as being solely motivated by love of God. And I'm gonna come back to this later on, he's gonna talk about a specific notion of love of God. And when you see a person like that, you kind of have to ask yourself the questions like, either A, they're a phenomenally good actor, or B, they are probably what they appear to be. Now, is it possible someone is a phenomenally good actor? I'm sure it's possible, but you know, again, living life, right? I mean, right? and so, and, and now for here, a halacha doesn't actually, because there's no halachic ramification to being a complete tzaddik or not being a complete tzaddik, it's a purely kind of spiritual matter. So you would just kind of leave it up to a person. Now, so if you were to have somebody who, who has a kind of an appreciation of these things and they see somebody that seems to fit the description, right? Um, I mean, that's how we tend to live our lives with most people. So you would, you, would, you would make that kind of, if you're just going approaching this kind of like from the kind of rational, critical thinking kind of way, you'd say, well, it seems to be the case. I have no reason to think otherwise. That's how we live our lives and everything else, okay? Now, you could go deeper and talk about the intrinsic bond that one soul has with another soul, that deep in your soul, you know, you could go that and that more mystical route as well. But I, I don't think that is a useful thing that's not communicable to another person. In other words, if something deep in your soul tells you this person is a perfect tzaddik, like, either you're right or you're wrong, but that's just something that you kind of sense for yourself. This is something at least is communicable. You could discuss what it, it would look like to be such a person and see, well, does this person even appear that way? So we do assume that the Rebbe was a... Right, so, so one of the rules about a Hasidic Rebbe, and I want to put some caveats around that. A Hasidic Rebbe in the tradition of the Baal Shem Tov, as opposed to other traditions we'll talk about in a moment, a prerequisite to that would be to be a complete tzaddik. Now, what do I mean? So while we're on the topic, the, the, and you'll see this idea is kind of developed a little bit as we go to the end of the chapter. The, the Hasidic Rebbe, as kind of envisioned by the Baal Shem Tov, is a bridge between the lives of the Hasidim and God. And that would require that this person has no, um, nothing that, that within themselves creates a separation between them and God. Um, and also requires that there's nothing in them that creates, from at least their point of view, a separation between them and other Jews. In other words, what, what's kind of the, 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 the qualifications necessary is that this person's experience of life doesn't allow, and I emphasize, does not, not that they over, not that they kind of come to this realization, but kind of their whole way of experiencing life doesn't allow for them to have a sense that connection to God is something that you achieve and it's optional. And for that matter, also connection to other Jews is something that's achieved or optional. In other words, that there's kind of this essential bond with God, there's a central bond, and that's how they experience their life. And then when they kind of take that inner experience and engage that on the communal level, that's what creates the kind of role of Hasidic Rebbe as originally practiced by the Baal Shem Tov and his successors. Um, 
in fact, to be perfectly honest, the notion of a Hasidic Rebbe functioning as a teacher of ideas um, is really an innovation for the most part of the Alter Rebbe. It's a third generation innovation, and even in the times of the Alter Rebbe, it was considered controversial. Um, now, so, so if that's your notion of a Hasidic Rebbe, well, then, you know, either you are like a really good pretender, or you are. Or your thing, right? Like, that, that, that's it. Now, there is another notion of Hasidic Rebbe which exists nowadays, which is the idea that Hasidic Rebbe's often build communities around themselves. And those communities survive the actual physical lives of the Hasidic Rebbe. And so now the question is, who leads the community? And I'm going to present it right now as like a stark contrast, and then I'll walk back from that stark contrast. So if you were to say, for instance, like, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna pick a Hasidic group because this, this Hasidic group is kind of self-defined as such. Say Satmar. Satmar, there's actually two Satmars, but let's, it doesn't matter. All right, both. Satmar doesn't have an ideology of being a Hasidic group in the model of the Balshanta that I just described, by self-definition. The, 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 the Satmar Rebbe, um, Rabbi Yotairobam, saw what he's doing as building a very insular or ultra-Orthodox community um, around certain, certain principles. Okay. Okay. Now, could, is that tzaddik and he gives brachas and all these things, but the idea, the idea of, and he famously once said that he's not going in the path and the approach of the Baal Shem Tov. Okay. And so sometimes you have Hasidic groups where, you know, the, the members will say like, once we had a, a real Rebbe, and now we have, a, we have the Rebbe's son or grandson because we need somebody who has to, to, to lead the community, and the person is, is a good Jew. Maybe they're really a tzaddik, maybe they're not really a tzaddik, you know, on a lower level tzaddik. Um, they have the merit of their ancestors to help, to help inspire them. So for instance, I'm, I'll, I'll give you, an, again, an, an actual specific example. I'm very close friends with a lot of people in the Hasidic group beyond. And the Biyan Rebbe is a, is a very wonderful Jew. Um, and I know this from secondhand. I did not speak to the Biyan Rebbe. I know people who have spoken to the Biyan Rebbe. And um, the Biyan Rebbe sees himself as a representative of the, 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 the holy ancestors and to lead the community along the path that was set out by the original um, tzaddikim of the Biyan, all the way back to um, Rujin and the Magad of Mizrich. And, you know, he's a very God-fearing Jew, and I'm not going into his soul. I don't know whether he's a... That's beside the point. But he doesn't see himself as providing this kind of mystical link. And, um, his chas- and you know, I mean, else you'd have to ask the chassid. There's the more, like, simple-minded people, and there's the more sophisticated people. Um, so I was speaking to somebody who's quite um, up in the beyonder world about, like, because the, the Biyana Rebbe was once by the Rebbe by Febregen when he was a young, when he was like a young man, 16, 17 years old, and we just want to know what year it was. So I asked him, why don't you just ask the Biyana Rebbe? And so this guy who's like a big mover and shaker in Biyana, he says, I don't know if the Rebbe remembers. <laughs> so there's an awareness that like, there's another role of Rebbe that, that has gotten, you know, th- th- that is much more sociological in principle with a kind of a spiritual getting tacked on rather than the kind of original model of the Baal Shem Tov, which is in essence a spiritual thing. Now, is it so easy to draw those lines? You know, there's a lot of gray area, right? Then you add people's egos and politics and tribalism and you get like, all right, your rabbi's not real rabbi. I don't want to get into that. But if you are making a claim, whether as a, as a, as a chassid or as a rebbe, that you are in the rebbe role that the Baal Shem Tov innovated, then you are implicitly making a claim of being a complete tzaddik. And, and so then if that claim is plausible or not. And, and there have been, for instance, in certain groups where they were, say for instance, I'll give you an example, in, in, um, there was the famous Bissarel of Rujin. Um, so he was, there was some controversy about some of his sons, who could, they split up and made their own groups, that some of his contemporaries felt that while he was a true tzaddik in that light and, and, and is able to, do that, that kind of authentic Baal Shem Tov Rebero. They didn't always necessarily think his sons were. And you've actually seen a similar idea play out um, between the, the sons of Yaakov. Is that you see this conflict between the sons of Yaakov and Yosef. And the way that's explained actually from the Magid son is that the other 
the other sons of the other sons of Yaakov were not these complete tzaddikim, and they made the assumption that Yosef was on their level. It was like Avram was a complete tzaddik on this level, Yitzchak was, Yaakov was, but we are, we're already on a lower level. We're on a, on a level of, of of incomplete tzaddik, and they had a hard time acknowledging that there was like a fundamental spiritual superiority to Yosef. Um, and Yosef, as I mentioned before, Tzadik, were not always mature about everything, um, did not handle that in his youth in the proper way. And there's a whole, and that idea is elaborated um, in other places. So you can have this kind of a thing. Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean the inverse is true. It doesn't mean that just because a person is a complete Tzadik, they do function in the Hasidic Rebbe role. They could be a complete Tzadik and you know, be living a private life and nobody knows about them. Approaches, but the level of attachment isn't there, so they don't they don't really need it. 
So is it because they have a different, like they're attached in a different way to Hashem? Right, because their attachment to Hashem, as we said before, their attachment to Hashem is directly to Hashem. And so their involvement, as we're going to see as the chapter goes on, their involvement in the world is not coming, is not becoming because they, they, they feel that the world is a constraining force on them. So, it's not coming. It's not a cons- they're not they're not feeling like I they don't feel that the world is a constraining force in them, so they don't need they don't they don't they don't and there's a, a complete sadik is only going to do something if if that's what God wants, not because they feel like that's how they need to do something. Um which means sometimes complete sadikim, like if they're willing to be more open about it, will act very weird. Because the whole point of reference is different. Um, which is actually one of the reasons why when the Baal Shem Tov started this whole movement, it was very controversial because um, not that before the Baal Shem Tov was no complete tzaddikim, but they didn't like make an open show of how they were different and how they can help unite other people with Hashem and kindle their souls. They just didn't do that as a general rule. Or if they did, it was very like secretive and to make it like a big public event. So again, if I'm going to say, I'm going to approach this purely from just a rational perspective of propositional knowledge, like can I know for the, I can't know anything about your inner states at all, right? I make judgments about it all the time. And if it has legal ramifications, we'll set standards. If it's not, I have to make reasonable judgments. And that's kind of how you would do it. Good? All right. So what is the, what is the, the, the he's called, so, so what does it mean to, to, el- be el- to elevate, to be B'nai means that you're actually taking the thing which is ungodly and you're so radically re- reshaping it that it's no longer like what it was before. Right? If you remember, I alluded to this when I described how the, the animal soul is being treated like the cow from the red heifer that gets burnt and then mixed with the water. So it's in that sense. So now I have to ask myself, do I actually really elevate anything that's ungodly to godliness? On the surface, it would not appear so because even when I do Torah mitzvahs, does my light, does the things which were ungodly seem radically redefined and so now there's something totally different? Like taking the coal and burning it. Doesn't seem like that. So later on, it says that that actually does exist when we do mitzvahs in a spiritual sense. But for the tzaddik, that's happening in their character, in their humanity, in their psychology. That literally every ungodly thing in their psyche has been burnt away and transformed into something else. Okay, and so that radical notion only exists with the complete tzaddik. It doesn't exist with the incomplete tzaddik. Because the incomplete tzaddik at the end of the day is not, doesn't have this elevation. It's much more like the intuitive notion where you shine light, you, there's no darkness. Right? There's more godliness felt so you don't feel the underlying attachment to klipa, to unholiness. So here, what, it's not speaking about that type of darkness. Right. right. That's why... Like so, a bitterness? Kind what? Of darkness? It's speaking about like a... In our example, like bitter turning into sweet? Right. 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 Okay. So, the, so, what, so if we say the, the, the complete sadik cooks the bitter food until it turns sweet. The incomplete sadik drowns it with a lot of sugar. In both cases, you don't taste the bitterness, but for radically different reasons, right? Okay. Good? So that's the first reason. A further explanation of the title... I really wish they, the superior men right. is that their service in the category of doing good in the fulfillment of the Torah's commandments is for the sake of the above the ultimate of the highest degrees and not merely in order to attach themselves to God so as to quench the thirst of their own soul which thirsts for God as it is written ho everyone that thirsteth come ye to the waters don't you like the old English <laughs> as explained elsewhere rather is their service that explained in the Zohar, who is kind, who conducts himself with benevolence towards his creator, towards his nest, uniting the holy and blessed behind Shechina with all those who dwell in it, in the innermost, in the nethermost worlds. Okay. I, I'm going to come back to some of the details in, in, in next week in the class. I just want to finish the, the basic idea. As also explained the Rai Mehemna Parshas Tetze, which is part of the Zohar, in the manner of a son who ingrates himself with his father and mother whom he loves more than his own body, his own soul and is prepared to sacrifice his own life for them to redeem them as explained elsewhere. So we take that paragraph. What is it generally saying? What does it mean that a complete tzaddik loves God? I mentioned this previously. That their notion of love of God is not I would like to be closer to God. 
it's that I want God to be happy. And if it's a choice, let's just talk about the example for a second. It uses the example of a, of a son and a parent. The son loves the parent so much that what would the son do? Sacrifice his life to redeem his parent from captivity. Not to save his parent's life, to redeem his parent from captivity. Now, I want to spend a little bit of time on this analogy. Is that true? Do children love their parents so much that they would be willing to die to save their parents from imprisonment? That probably depends on the situation. As a general thing. Not really, it's usually the other way around. It's not usually like that. In fact, what's interesting is that in Halacha, it also says this is not true. Children don't love their parents this much. And that's because, remember how I spoke before about how analogies have to be understood? Okay. What is the basis of the love of a child to their parents? Why do children love their parents? No, that's a different kind of love. You have to differentiate that. Let's use a, Let's use a, a, an extreme example to illustrate the point. Let's say a person doesn't know who their parents are. Do they still love their parents? No. Do such people? So then we have to say, do such people, and then we have to be very, very, very careful. Why do we have to be very careful? Because this gets into a sensitive issue. Do such people have, whether they act on it or not, have, we'll just say, a desire? to know their parents. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. For our purposes, that is going to be an indication of love. Because remember, we spoke about before, love is a sense of attachment, desire, and closeness. So that's there. Now, it's clearly not like love in the normal sense that we think about it. Because normally love is like, I know the person, therefore I love them, right? So there's kind of a deep sense of this is who I come from. And then attach them to that, right? And that's what, God forbid, it can be very traumatic for a person to find out who their parent is and realize that person is not such a great person, right? So the, the, this is what's important, is that the analogy of a love of a parent to a child in Hasidus is often nothing to do with the care the parent shows for the child, but is an existential bond. The sense that you came from someone. You have a source, in other words. And somehow, some deep part of a person feels like that source is supposed to provide them with a sense of an identity. Does that make sense? How, how does the analogy of a child dying for his parents... I didn't get there yet. I didn't get there yet. I'm just starting first with the notion of love. Right. So we're talking about the love of a child to a parent. How did the analogy come in? You just said it? No, I've like never said it. It's in the text. End of the paragraph. From the czar. What? No, no, no. So, no, no. So now, what does it mean? That, what is it? What, so, so we interrogate this a little bit more. What sense are the parents the source of the child? It's not just like technically, like because there's parents, you exist, right? There's a lot of technical things. There's a sense in which somehow we have an instinct. Again, different societies embrace this or suppress this more or less. We have an instinct that who we are is somehow derived is somehow a continuation of our parents. Does that make sense? We have that aspect of ourselves? Okay. So if we were to just look at that single point, okay? If, if we take that who I am as a person is derived from my parents, then who is the, who is the original? Who is the, who is the truer version? The parent. The parent. Okay, so if I were to just take that, right, then a child would feel that the, the, the kind of the core, the main thing is the parent and their whole existence is merely an offshoot and a secondary thing. And if a child were to feel that way, I don't want to emphasize if, we'll come back to the second one, we don't. If they were to feel that way, that really truly their whole existence is merely just an offshoot of the parent, and it was a question between the parents' well-being and their existence. Well, think about it like this. Do we cut off branches of a tree so that the tree can grow better? Better, not save the tree, just grow better. Yes. That seems a perfectly reasonable thing for us to do. So if you saw yourself as a branch and the parent as the main tree, and God forbid your death would end up having your parent be redeemed from whatever constraints that they have, then 
in that way of thinking, it would make perfect sense, right? Now, why don't human beings actually feel this way? Because we're not branches off of our parents, are we? We have become separate beings. And so a human being is not an offshoot of their parent, right? A human being is a separate being. And because we're a separate being, all of our relationships to any other human being are secondary to the value we place upon ourselves. Which means, is a person actually generally feel this way? That they're gonna give up their life to redeem their parents? No. In fact, even more so in halacha, because you're a separate person, are you allowed to kill one person to save another person? So therefore, if it's a choice actually between the life and death of the parent and the life and death of the child, the parent's going to die. Is the child allowed to volunteer to die in their stead? No. So what it's describing here is an idea that if you took the notion of being a child, abstracted it from the fact that you're a separate person, you would have this kind of a feeling. But we're not separate. We are separate people, so we don't have this kind of feeling. Now, why is this relevant? Because the godly soul is really derived from God, right? And God is one. Well, if God is one, does it mean the godly soul ever becomes a separate being? You see what I'm doing? If I take the notion of being a child of someone, meaning that your identity derives from them, and I take it out of the fact that human beings are individuals, and I take that notion and I apply it to the idea of unity of God, then every soul has this innate sense that the true being is God and I am merely a branch of that, an offshoot of that. And if that's the case, you prune the branch so the tree grows better. And so... This kind of a love is the manifestation that the soul is not a separate being from God, but just merely an offshoot of God, merely branching off of God. Which, which, what? What? It's not a faulty analogy. Analogies, analogies have to be, every analogy is going to have limits, and so you have to know how to abstract the limits, right? So a human being is fundamentally different than God. And one of the ways human being is fundamentally different than God, a human being is a single individual within a larger context. Right? That's what human being is, right? You are you, are, you, are you I am me, we live in a world, right? So someone is in an offshoot of me and, and carries that sense, also carries their own sense of personal autonomy, personal individuality, and therefore when they look back on their parent, as much as an existential attachment they have to their parent, it's limited by what it is to be human. What it is to be human is that fundamentally you're your own autonomous person. But now God is an absolute unity. So if you're a child of God, and you have a childlike relationship with God, there's no notion of separateness at all. And so um, what the altar of action points out in another discourse is that this kind of love of, this, of the child to the parents is described in the Zohar, which is a Kabbalistic text. It is not described in Jewish law, which deals with our embodied existence. Because if you talk about this idea and you want to put it in the realm of a human being, you have to constrain it by what a human being is. And then you can get the conceptual basis of this love, but then it gets overridden by the human individualism, by the fact that a human being is their own person. But then if you take that same idea and abstract it from that and apply it to the notion that God is all, then for the soul, it's very clear that, that God is all. And whatever it is that I'm, a, I'm, an, I'm, a, I'm godly is just an extension of that. And you don't never... You don't, you don't ever prioritize the extension, the secondary thing, the branch, over the welfare of the, of the original source. Unless you impose this notion of being a separate individual. So this kind of person, how would they feel about themselves? What, is their, what does it mean they love Hashem? There is no sense of, I want to get closer to Hashem. Their sense is, I am part of Hashem is Hashem, and I am an extension of Hashem trying to live his life, be himself. And so therefore, my desires are not to fulfill my need to be close to Hashem, my need to return to my maker, my need to connect to my source. But rather, I am, I am experiencing his needs. That's, a, that's another question. We have questions and answers tomorrow. You can ask me. So now, what does that mean? When I do a mitzvah, for the right reasons. When an incomplete tzaddik does a mitzvah for the right reasons, what are we trying to do with our mitzvahs? We're trying to get closer to Hashem. When a complete tzaddik does a mitzvah, what are they trying to do? 
They're trying to make Hashem happen. We'll see later on. They're trying to make everything else closer to Hashem. It's a very different kind of love. So now going back to your question, how can you tell if someone's a complete tzaddik? Do you see a person exhibiting this kind of a feeling towards Hashem and how they approach their life in a consistent way? Later on, the altar says in chapter 42 that all Jews, because we have a godly soul, should mimic this kind of attitude. But we should also be aware that what we're doing is we're mimicking something. It's like a child playing as an adult. When a child plays as an adult, it's, it's, it's a healthy thing because they're, deep down, there is the, they could be an adult. And so they're kind of trying that thing on. There's some authenticity to it. But at the same time, the child knows that they're not an adult. And so he says, like, when you say, I'm, when you like, I'm doing something for, to make Hashem happy, you should realize that on one hand, it's true in some deep existential, and on the other hand, it should feel like a little bit foolish, because it's a little like you're, you're play acting, because you don't really feel that way. You actually feel very distant from Hashem, and that you feel the need to get closer to Hashem. But a complete tzaddik, really, the overwhelming sense of love that they feel is not getting closer to Hashem. It's, I need, my needs are just a feeling of Hashem's needs. Now, if I, I just want to point out, experientially, a better analogy might be the way parents feel about their children. But that's not the analogy it's used. The reason why is because that analogy is not explanatory. Is it true that parents will often feel that their children's needs are their own needs? Yes. Absolutely. But the reasoning for that has no bearing on understanding the tzaddik and God. Why do, what's, what's the basic reason why parents feel that their children's needs are their needs? No. Parents are mortal. That's fine. But, but why are they prioritizing the child's needs over their own? Even the point that parents will give up their life to save their child. Or to redeem the child. Even. Parents are mortal. And if your identity persists, if your sense of being persists in your child, so how do you preserve your own immortality? Prioritizing your children. Now, does that have help us understand the relationship between, between the tzaddik and Hashem? That, all, that gets the idea flipped around. So, in other words, it depends what you're using the analogy for. If the analogy is to describe the experience, this is a poor analogy. If the analogy is to explain the idea, why do children love their parents? Despite the fact that they have their, their own self and their own individuality, they still retain some sense that my source of my identity of my being came from my parents. If you take that and you abstract it out and you don't constrain it by human individualism, you get a sense of what the godly soul would feel like. If on the other hand, you take what a parent feels towards the child, that's nothing like it because that has to do with perpetuating yourself beyond your own mortal life, which has nothing to do with the godly soul of God. So it depends if we're trying to describe the experience or the underlying idea of the love. And that's an important thing is that most of the analogies in Hasidus are to get at the concept of the thing, not just not an analogy to describe the experience of the thing. This is why we use this analogy. But I have often used the analogy, the reverse analogy to help just get a sense of what it feels like. Good? Okay. Thank you.